Hello, hello, Discasters. How are you all doing? I hope you're all having a wonderful week. All right, so this week we are delving into the first, actually the first ever Disney animated sequel to be released in theaters, which is The Rescuers Down Under. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I thought it was super fun. And the biggest thing that I noticed was animation wise, it because this film was released in 1990. And to me, it doesn't feel like a 90s movie, if that makes sense. Aside from the fact that there's nothing that particularly dates it to whenever it is, but also just the animation style, when you compare it to all the other movies that were coming out at the time within the Renaissance, it all feels so different. So this is very... This, this movie really, really does not feel like it should be released when it was. And I think... And I think that's part of the charm of it. It's very bright. It's very pretty. Uh, there's a lot of there's some use of like really good CGI that you know isn't weird and gross. But I think that's because the rest of the film is animated, so it it it, it just works. It balances it. Um, yeah. Okay. But before I get into the film, uh, I'm gonna uh, just some brief headlines here. Uh, so first headline is in regards to we're coming back to the whole um, uh, like anti-LGBTQ bill uh, and everything that's going on. And something new has come up. Um, the Disney heir, the heir, I, I guess the heir to the Disney fortune or the heir to the line of, or to the Disney line uh, is a man by the name of Charlie Cora. And he is a teacher. Uh, I believe he is a, uh, a bio- he's a high school biology and environmental science teacher. Uh, and he is also trans. And so he came forward. Uh, he uses they, he uses he and they pronouns. Uh, he came forward and first off apologized because he felt that he wasn't doing enough in regards to all of this. And so he has announced that their family would match up to $250,000 in donations to the human rights campaign. Uh, and then Roy P. Disney, Cora's stepfather and grandson of Roy O. Disney, you know, Walt's brother, uh, upped that amount to $500,000 last week. So, yeah, so it's kind of a big thing that the heir of the Disney line is coming forward and being like, look, this is bullshit and we need to do better, basically. So I, I applaud him for that and I love that it's great uh and yeah so hopefully he comes forward and starts to do more I mean like I I understand because I feel like I feel like the the company itself has seemed to kind of step away from the fam from the Disney family uh and so it's nice to know that somebody within the family still is very conscious of what's going on and wants to do something about it i I like that i think that's good and so who knows maybe charlie will come forward and be a lot more you know uh vocal about stuff so that's really good uh yeah that's really nice also another little minor thing uh but we celebrate uh as of the 10th we celebrate the 30th anniversary of Newsies, uh, the original film musical, not the stage musical, which or not the stage production, which came uh, well after, but the original film 
which talked about, of course, the uh, um, the rise of the unionization of the Newsies, uh, which is, of course, actually based on a real thing. Now, the film had, the film did flop, but uh, that's okay because I think it became kind of a pretty big. Uh, I think it, I think it garnered a bit of a cult following, but also the stage production super took off the stage production i think is far more successful than uh than the film version was uh the film version was written by bob zudiker and noni white and directed by kenny ortega uh kenny ortega is a he's worked with disney on a whole bunch of projects you will know what they are like other than newsies he worked on hoka he worked on hocus pocus high school musical uh michael jackson's this is it the uh the descendant series julie and the phantoms uh so he's he's well known within the within the disney kind of ethos i guess i don't know the disney verse uh that's the right word <laughs> uh but the stage production uh which first uh premiered back in september of 2011 uh was music by ellen Mankin. Lyrics by Jack Feldman and the book by Harvey Fierstein. So yeah, so some pretty big powerhouses uh, in regards to the actual stage production itself. So yeah, that's really good. Uh, Jack Feldman was an American lyricist uh, who worked on like Oliver and Company, Lion King Two, just to name a couple. And like Oliver and Company, I I love those songs. I, the songs in that movie I think are really really good and are severely underrated in my opinion. Anyway. But yeah, so it's the 20th anniversary of the original, or sorry, 30th anniversary of the original uh, film. Uh, I might do a thing on it. I might do a special episode on it because of that. Uh, I don't know yet. haven't thought about it, honestly, because I didn't realize it until literally, like, today. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's okay. I might, I might do a special episode on it just to, just to celebrate the 30th anniversary. Um, we'll find out. Uh but for now, uh, we're going to talk about The Rescuers Down Under, which is, in my opinion, one of those movies that... <sighs> so, with the Renaissance, technically this movie was released during the Renaissance period. I say technically, it was. Uh, the thing about the Renaissance period is that I feel like so many, uh, so much of the focus was put onto kind of the main animated musical films. There are a couple films that came out during this time that were swept under the rug and that were just generally kind of forgotten about uh, that definitely deserved their time in the spotlight. Rescuers Down Under is obviously one of them. Uh, the, uh, the Emperor's New Groove is absolutely one of them. Atlantis The Lost Empire, a fucking beautiful movie. Uh, and a goofy movie, you know, that fucking gem. So yeah, uh, it's a shame, but I do think that those movies, uh, definitely deserve their time in the spotlight. And I certainly look forward to talking more about them. But for now, we're going to talk about The Rescuers Down Under. So The Rescuers Down Under, uh, released in 1990, uh, is meant to be, of course, a sequel to The Rescuers. Uh, there is no set kind of time in between when this takes place post the original rescuers 
but I'm gonna I'm just gonna guesstimate and I'm gonna say it's at least five years. Like just to kind of throw a number out there. Uh, at this point, um, we know or we kind of have an idea of what's gone on between Bianca and Bernard. Uh, although it's quite questionable, and I'll get to that once I get to it. But for now, we're going to start off with uh, with this film. So we start off kind of with like what's been kind of going on recently in that there is no set or there, there's there's credits, but there's no like uh, at this point, there wasn't really like set credit sequences like there like there was in previous eras. Um, so we basically start off with like a beautiful panning shot of moving through the underbrush of like the, the Australian outback. Uh, lots of stuff that was reminiscent to the use of the multiplane camera, except done in digital as opposed to done with like the physical giant freaking tower thing that they used to use. Uh, and then it cuts to, and then it comes to this big sprawling, like, uh, like a big, a big long shot of the camera zooming in along until it lands on a house. Uh, and while all that's happening, there's this beautiful score. Like the score for this movie is pretty great. Like it's still kind of in my head even now. And I just watched it last night. Like, yeah, it's it's real good. Uh, but we cut to uh, a young boy named Cody, uh, who his whole bag is that uh, he has befriended a bunch of the animals within the outback, and they all go to him to help save animals that have been captured. Uh, by poachers and things like that. So uh, this movie definitely delves into things like environmentalism, maybe not so much environmentalism, but definitely environmentalism, but at the very least to animal conservation, uh, which uh, I think it's been noted that things like that haven't, or a film like that hasn't happened since Bambi. Uh, And uh, I don't know, I wouldn't exactly consider Bambi a movie about about animal conservatism. Um, But this movie... Absolutely. It's very, it's very anti-poacher, for example. Uh, And yeah, and so we see Cody kind of like uh, hearing what sounds like a didgeridoo, which is, of course, a uh, traditional um, Australian Aboriginal uh, instrument. You you know what a didgeridoo is. Like, you know what it is. So he rolls out of bed and he sneaks out of his house in the morning. His mom calls back. He's like, Cody, Cody. I mean, I can't, I can't pull it out of my ass. But I'll, I'm not even going to try to do the the accent right now. Uh, but basically, just being like warning him to like make sure he's back for supper kind of thing. And it kind of got me thinking. It's like, oh, maybe that's the thing that super dated this movie. Because like when I was younger, it was definitely a case of like, I'm going to go out. And my mom and my, my mom would be like, okay, fine. Just be back by this time. And it's like, okay, bye. And I like, just wouldn't know where the fuck I was going. <laughs> but not, whereas nowadays, I feel like that's different. Um. Anywho, and so he runs into the he runs into the outback, runs into the forest, finds a bunch of his animal friends, and then they tell him that there's uh, that there's an eagle that's been captured by uh, in a net. So he decides to free climb this cliff because why not, and finds that this giant golden eagle named Marahute has uh, been caught. And so he frees the eagle. He falls off the cliff because he gets knocked off. And the eagle comes in, recognizing he's a friend, sweeps him up. And it's all beautiful. And the score is stunning. And it's like just visually, it's gorgeous. 
and he's flying around on the back of his new eagle friend, and then eventually the eagle, uh, Merhute, takes him back to her nest, finds out that, of course, she's a mother, has three eggs, finds out that the dad is dead, uh, and then, yeah, and then he kind of just gets dropped off, and that's it. And then he finds himself caught in an animal trap. And uh, then this is where we meet Percival C. McLeach, the main villain of this film. Uh, he is, of course, a local poacher, wanted by the Australian Rangers, obviously. Uh, and so he gets him out of the thing and then uh, sees that the boy has a golden feather, which the boy was given by Mary Hute. And he's like, oh, so you know about you know about the bird. And he tells him basically that he killed the dad you know so yeah that's not great uh anyway uh kidnaps cody uh throws his pack into the into the river to get chomped up by crocodiles to kind of give like a sort of alibi uh and then the little mouse that uh he had in his pack uh ends up sending a signal off to the rescue aid society so this is kind of like I guess you could consider this a pseudo cold open, even though, again, it doesn't jump into like any real credit sequence, but it feels like a cold open. And so he sends it off and it's it's this really cool sequence of like them sending like telegraph uh, notices, like using Morse code. And then it'll cut to like this this digital earth and there's like an arrow sending it to like uh, uh, the next stopping point. And then from there it goes to the next stopping point. And then from there it goes like it's it's very cool. And each sequence is like a new uh, is showing a new set of mice uh, who are relaying the message. So finally it arrives in New York, uh, arrives at the Rescue Aid Society. There's an emergency council called and then they're like, OK, so a boy has been kidnapped in Australia and I think we should send our best two agents. And then it go cuts to uh, the empty chairs of. Uh, Bianca and Bernard, which are, of course, next to each other, Hungary and USA. And, yeah. And so they're like, oh, no, we got to find them. <laughs> they're all, like, super panicked. It's very funny. And then it cuts to this wonderful, beautiful, high-class restaurant uh, where apparently Bernard and Bianca are dining. And apparently Bernard is wanting to ask Bianca to marry him. Okay. So here's kind of my problem with this is that i don't i mean it's assumed at the end of the first at the end of the original rescuers that bianca and bernard were kind became kind of a thing and that's great i don't hate it i think it's adorable i think it's sweet uh i think bernard is definitely like punching above his his belt in the case of bianca um but throughout the rest of this film we don't get any sort of real indication that him and Bianca are actually a couple. And so it kind of just throws you off, I guess. I mean, there's no like a, there's no real indicator that, you know, they're a thing and like aside from just like the small interact the the minor interactions that they have with each other like he called like she calls him darling and stuff like that but i'm like yeah but i feel like that's just miss bianca just telling him just calling him that so it's really hard to really determine whether or not they are actually a thing and whether or not bernard is actually you know proposing marriage to his girlfriend you know if that makes sense so it's like i don't know 
it's 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 too ambiguous for me and i feel like they could have done a little more you know i guess legitimizing of their relationship if that makes sense i guess i don't know it's hard but regardless personally i ship them i think they're adorable together and i think it's great but anyway so we cut to this restaurant where bernard is wanting to propose to bianca uh, Bernard, being the clumsy little guy he is, he finds out that the ring that he had in his pocket, which wasn't in a box for some goddamn reason, uh, had fallen out of his pocket. So he ro- so he crawls away to go find it. Bianca gets the telegram, uh, and then Bernard comes back. Uh, there's a bit of a miscommunication in which Bianca, uh, because the the waiter was going to go tell Bernard what had happened with the telegram of course the the summons and so but bernard didn't didn't hear him and so bianca thinks that he heard it and so bianca's like yes so uh did francois tell you what's happening okay cool yeah i think we should do it meanwhile bernard is thinking that she's talking about the proposal so there's a bit of miscommunication up until they get to the rescue aid society and then bianca announces uh, she's like yes we have agreed to take this take this mission to australia And, and bernard's like wait what it's quite funny. Uh, and then they head to the airport and then they go up to uh, the Albatross Air because they're going to go and, you know, hire Wilbur again. Or sorry, uh, Orville again, like they did in the last film. But for some reason, Orville isn't there. And so they go to his brother, Wilbur, uh, and they, who agreed to fly them to Australia in the middle of a snowstorm. Uh, so, uh, in here, here's the thing with what happened here. So the voice actor who played Orville in the original passed away two years before this film's, uh, they started working on this film. And so instead of hiring someone new, they decided to just have it so that instead of flying with Orville, they're flying with his brother as a way to kind of preserve that. And I think that's very nice. I think that's sweet. I think that's a, that's that was the smart choice. Uh, and so, because, yeah, because Wilbur is his own character voiced by John Candy, actually. Uh, and uh, in terms of the other, in terms of uh, Bianca and Bernard, of course, they brought back uh, Ava Gabor and Bob Newhart to reprise their roles, uh, which, again, was definitely the smart choice. And everyone does an amazing job in this movie. So they decide to hire Wilbur, or I guess they're forced to hire Wilbur. Wilbur agrees to help them and then uh, takes off. And there's a funny, there's a funny point in which Bianca asks, she's like, she's like, Mr. Wilbur, is this a straight, is this a one nonstop flight to Australia? And Wilbur's like, oh God, no, no, we're definitely going to need to like uh, make a stop on a bigger bird. And I just thought that was very funny because in watching it, you're like, there's no way in hell this seagull is going to fly them or this albatross is going to fly them all the way to fucking Australia from New York. That's a crazy idea. Uh, And so I like that they kind of justified, or I guess, I I don't know if justify is the right word, but they definitely made it so that uh, people, I guess, wouldn't assume that. I don't know. They they made it work is basically what I'm saying. Uh, So, yeah. And so when they when they do that um you find out that this bigger bird is quite literally just another 747 <laughs> and so what they what what he did was he 
hid inside the wheel, like inside the underbit of the plane. They're like sleeping on the wheel and they wake up um, until they hit Australia. So I'm, I'm assuming what happened was he flew them to, I don't know, maybe at least across the States uh, and then over to somewhere, maybe Los Angeles or wherever there would be a connecting flight to go to Australia from the U.S. So, so that's what happens. So it's it's very funny. And then uh, they arrive in uh, Australia, where they very quickly meet Jake. Jake is a hopping mouse uh, who is a legion, a legional, a local regional operative for the RAS. Uh, that being, of course, the Rescue Aid Society. Uh, and I don't know about y'all, but Jake's hot. <laughs> He's very much your classic kind of like outback. Uh, uh, how would you even call him? I don't know. Think Crocodile Dundee in a freaking in mouse form, I guess. I don't know. That's more or less what this is kind of based on anyway. Uh, with the with the uh, popularity of Crocodile Dundee and a lot of the Australian things like Australian adventure stuff, they wanted to make this movie. Uh, as a sort of Australian adventure film. And so they decided to set it in Australia, which honestly, it it works. And like, yeah, it's great. Anyway, uh, but yeah, so they meet Jake. Um, there's a funny little side, there's one of the side plot in which uh, when Wilbur is trying to like help them with their baggage, he his back goes out and so he's got to be taken to the hospital. There's a whole fucking sequence of him like, getting rehabbed and shit by this really really crazy doctor with like a bunch of like uh nurses that look like nuns like i i don't know if that i feel like that's a regional thing but like i've seen that kind of look before with like where like nurses like look like they have wimples kind of thing uh but anyway but this doctor is like fucking batshit crazy (laughs) he like at some point, he wants to, like, operate on Wilbur for some goddamn reason. We don't know why. Uh, he, his back is out. Just give him, like, a... Just crack his back or some shit. It's just... Ugh, it's just hilarious. And, of course, what ultimately fixes his back is after he finds out they're about to chainsaw him in half, he's, like, running out the window, and he's, like, being pulled back by all the mice, and then eventually, with the pulling and with him pushing himself, they eventually his back goes, Crack! And it like fixes himself, and it and it fixes, uh, and he's like, "Oh my god, I'm cured! All right, I'm out. I gotta go find these mice." <laughs> it's it's that whole se- the whole like mini B plot is actually very funny. Anyway, uh, so they meet Jake. Uh, Jake discovers what they're or figures out what they're trying to do, and he agrees to help because he's like, "Look, you need somebody who knows what's who knows the outback and blah blah blah." And so they're like, "Okay." So the three of them become a team, and they head off to go and try and find. Uh, uh, Cody. Now, while this is happening, Cody is being taken back to uh, McLeach's lair. Uh, I guess I can call it a lair. His home base? Yeah, I'll call it a lair. He's a, he's the villain. Uh, which is apparently in an abandoned opal mine. So he he knows like nobody's going to come checking. He knows that he's basically safe uh, from prying eyes. And it's there where Cody finds out there's a bunch of other animals that are like locked away inside there's like a kangaroo a koala um there's a snake there's some other uh some other animals uh and the whole time like McLeach is basically trying to get 
the location of Marahute out of him. He says he doesn't know. I'm inclined to believe him because, like, fuck, I don't know. He, he, he He's an eagle. He flies around. We don't know where he is. I don't know. So, yeah. Um, but, of course, uh, McLeish is, is hell-bent on finding the, lo- the location of where Marahute is so that he can find the damn bird. So... McLeach locks him away because he doesn't give him his answer. And so he starts to ruminate about how to pull how to, uh, you know, uh, pull out this information. Uh, he decides he figures out because Joanna is like eating his his normal eggs so that he can make himself some food. And he's uh, and he's all mad at Joanna. He's like, look, I give you these eggs. I give you those eggs. I even give you eagle eggs. And then he and then he realizes, oh, that's it. That's the boy's weak spot. The eggs. Now, eventually, uh, Bernard, Bianca, and Jake all arrive at, uh, at the lair. Uh, there's a little bit of, like, flirting going on between Jake and Bianca. Bianca is just being sweet and everything. Bernard is getting a little jealous, obviously. Bernard tries to uh, propose to Bianca at one point, but then is interrupted when Jake, like, wrangles a, 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 a snake, uh, like the badass he is, because he's awesome and hot uh (laughs) and then uh yeah and so that's kind of how they end up continuing their search until they eventually arrive where they need to be to mcleach's lair uh and then they see that mcleach basically frees cody and lets him go uh but then kind of puts the hint it's like or he tells cody that marahute has been shot down and that oh no those poor eggs whatever will they do without their mother and so Cody, of course, being the empathetic person, runs away and heads in the direction to, directly to the eggs. And so uh, McLeach decides to follow. Uh, and then the three of, and then Jake, Bianca and Bernard uh, jump onto this crazy giant like it's not a tank, but it's like a like a truck with like a giant cage on the back of it. Uh, it's like it's basically like. It's a truck that a regular poacher should not have because it's so big and obvious that, like, if he were, like, it's it's just wild. It's wild because he would easily be caught. Like, that thing is not quiet. So, of course, uh, he comes up to Cody, who is on the edge of the cliff. Uh, and, but again, also, like, how did Cody not freaking notice like it's wild to me that cody would not have noticed this giant truck tank thing coming behind him anyway suspension of disbelief y'all anyway so cody arrives at the thing and of course uh mcleach is right behind him and so uh this is after like cody has climbed down to the nest that he was taken to and is like wanting to take care of them. And then Bianca, Bernard, and Jake arrive, tell him that, you know, he's in danger, that McLeach is there. McLeach, of course, uh, kind of captures him. Uh, and then, or no, sorry, what happens is uh, Merhute comes back, and that's where that's where Cody sees that Merhute is alive. And then he's like, oh, no. And so, like, freaking McLeach has, like, this rocket, like a rocket, that he launches at Marahute, which explodes, produces a net, 
and then it catches the and it catches Marihute. And then he's pulling the bird up. Cody jumps on the thing to try and cut her free, but then they both end up getting captured into his like weird little cage thing. Um Bianca and Jake are also captured as well, but Bernard is unfortunately left behind in the nest. Uh so there's a bit of a breakup there. Uh not an actual break. You know what I mean? Uh and so now McLeach is all excited because he's finally caught what he wants. And so he effectually drives off, uh, or no, sorry, but before he drives off, he takes he g- takes Joanna, throws her down so that she can eat the egg so that it can officially, like, you know, uh, so that Marihute can officially be the last bird of her kind. He's basically trying to just, like, kill off this bird. McLeach is not a nice person. Anyway, and so Joanna goes up to these eggs, tries to eat them, but can't. Because it isn't... Er, so Joanna then is like, you know what? Fuck it. So it just knocks them down off the cliff. And it isn't until later after Joanna's gone that we find out that Bernard had actually replaced the eggs with rocks. So he hid the eggs. So we know they're safe. They're okay. And then suddenly Wilbur lands. And then Bernard basically tells Wilbur that Bianca's in danger. Here's the situation. And what I need you to do is I need you to sit on these eggs because I need you to incubate them. And Wilbur's like, well, fuck. Well, not exactly in those words, but you know what I mean. And so he's left behind to sit on the eggs and, you know, incubate them. And then uh, Bernard basically goes off and tries to catch up, but he can't because he's a little mouse. And so while they're driving, while uh, McLeach and everyone are driving off, uh, we kind of cut to Bernard, who is well behind. And so what happens is uh, Bernard... uh, comes across a razorback and basically (laughs) like forces it into submission because Bernard's like, that's it. I'm fucking done. And it's really cool. It's like a great moment. It's like a great character moment for him. Um, he like tames the razorback and, uh, he uses like that, this, this technique that he learned from Jake who, who basically like tamed the snake that was going to eat them back in the river um it's the same thing to the razorback the razorback listens and then he like takes the razorback and like runs off to follow uh to follow the tracks that mcleach's giant truck thing is leaving behind again he's leaving behind he's a poacher he's leaving behind tracks he could easily be caught i don't know why he hasn't been caught yet these rangers are not really good at their job but anyway i digress so mcleach ends up at crocodile falls in which his whole purpose is to basically drop Cody into the water to be then consumed by crocodiles. Because again, McLeach is not a nice person. So when he does that, like uh, when he's just about to drop him in, the entire truck shuts off. He turns around and he sees a Razorback run out of like the driver's seat. And he's like, Joanna, did you know there was a Razorback in the truck? should probably go deal with it. So Joanna tries to go and sniff around. Um, McLeach goes into the truck to try and turn it back on again, but the keys are gone because, of course, Bernard has the keys and he's hiding. He's like, hmm, that's interesting. The keys don't just up and walk away. So he's trying to find them. Uh, Bernard sneaks away, uh, gets discovered by Joanna. So he's, like, running around. They're playing a very literal cat and mouse game. Uh then uh 
Bernard throws the keys up to Jake and Bianca, who then proceed to like pass it to each other as they climb back up in order to open the cage. Um, so McLeish decides instead to just shoot the rope that is holding Cody and drop him into the water. He gets one hit, and so he's like, it's just dangling there, right? And so what happens is uh, Bernard ends up running at McLeach, being chased by Joanna, runs up his body. Joanna basically tackles McLeach, and they're, like, hanging on the edge. They're, like, just about to fall in until Bernard basically pokes the foot, and then all the weight gets shifted, and then they fall into the water. So Bernard effectively just... I mean... Is it murder? Is it? I mean, do the same laws apply to mice? I don't know. But basically, that's how McLeach ends up in the water. Unfortunately as well, though, Cody falls into the... uh, The rope that's holding him finally snaps, and he falls into the water as well. Uh, Bernard jumps in to try and save him. They open the gate. Um, McLeach is like batting away at crocodiles, uh, you know, trying to shoot them away. Joanna ends up swimming away to safety because I think, she, I want to say she's some sort of monitor lizard, I think. Uh, and then McLeach uh, ends up seeing all the crocs swim away. He's like, ha I have one. And then he turns around and is like, oh shit, there's a waterfall. And then he falls over the waterfall. C- thus continuing the uh, ever-growing legacy of Disney villains falling to their deaths. But anyway... Cody and Bernard are also in the same rapids. So they're trying to like swim to safety. Bernard ends up getting a getting a uh getting the rope uh tied onto a root. Uh so he's holding Cody for dear life until finally unfortunately it snaps and then they go they go over the water, but the uh Jake opens the thing and then Marahute escapes. All Marahute, Bianca and Jake fly up into the sky. They fly down and they dive bomb until they catch uh, Cody and save him right before he hits the water. And everyone's safe. Yay! And then they kind of fly off into the distance. Uh, Bernard finally uh, proposes to Bianca. It's a very it's a very precious moment of course bianca immediately accepts jake salutes him uh because why not uh and then everyone is safe uh yay and then it kind of cuts to it cuts back to the cliffside with wilbur and he's like hello hello is anyone there and then suddenly you hear the eggs cracking and then the eggs crack and now wilbur's i guess a dad question mark a dad mom but anyway it's very funny. It's a happy ending. But the question remains, what happens to the animals in McLeach's lair? Hmm. Well, presumably Cody like takes the rain takes the rangers back and frees all the animals. So I'm going to I'm going to live in a world in which those animals are free. <laughs> that's going to that's my head canon. Anyway. So, yeah, so that's the rescuers done under. All in all, this movie is actually very fun. It's written well. Uh, the message is sweet. The music is really good. It's not a musical. It's just like the score is really, really good. It's really like, it's memorable. That's the thing about it. It's very, very fun. Uh, and yeah, uh, like I said, this movie came out in 1990, but again, doesn't look like it. It does not look like it was released in 1990. 
Uh, it also had uh, a a short in front of it. Uh, it was released, I believe, with The Prince and the Popper, the, the Mickey Mouse short. Uh, so that was interesting. I think that's partly because this movie is only like 177 minutes long. It's not very long. Uh, and so that's probably why they released it with the short to kind of lengthen it a little bit, or at least lengthen the time in the theater. Um, box office was $47.4 million. Uh, I don't think this film was, uh, considered like a success success. Um, but I do think this movie did receive at least some positive reviews on it. Um, yeah. During its opening weekend, it only grossed three and a half million, ranking fourth after Home Alone, Rocky Five, and Child's Play 2. So it was up against some pretty, some pretty, um, uh, what's it called? Um... It was up against some some hard hitters. Uh, and as a result, actually, Jeffrey Katzenberg decided to recall the film's television advertising altogether. So, I don't know, man. I mean, eh. personally, I think this movie is great. Uh, it is released on Blu-ray as a two-movie collection alongside The Rescuers back in 2012, uh, which I think is a smart idea. There's a, there's a few of those out there. Like, I know there's a Mulan one, where's Mulan 1 and Mulan 2. I think there's a Hunchback blu-ray as well that's hunchback one and hunchback two um pocahontas as well i believe it's a lot of those like sequels that like never really went anywhere kind of thing and they released them with the originals um but yeah all in all i give this movie like a seven or eight out of ten it's very fun it's beautiful visually it's got a hell of a score and yeah all in all I highly, highly recommend it, especially if you want to see something that's, like, very fun and also just has a really good message, you know? Just fuck poachers. Poachers are bad people, just inherently. They're shitty people. So, yeah. <laughs> we, are, we, are, we are very anti-poacher on this podcast, which I think is, you know, a given. But any hoozles. So, uh, next week for if so if we're continuing with the bronze age uh i believe next week is uh hold on oh sorry okay where's the list oh yeah oh jesus oh next week is fox and the hound oh am i ready for emotions am i ready am i ready to be like be emotionally scarred i say emotionally scarred <laughs> um hmm so so the question is either a fox fox and the hound or uh newsies um to celebrate newsies 30th anniversary you know what you know what let's do that we're gonna do newsies next week just to celebrate his 30th anniversary yeah yeah let's do that so we're gonna do newsies next week uh i'm I'm kind of excited for it because I've never actually seen the original Newsies. I've only ever seen the Broadway version, which I really enjoyed. Um, it's just kind of a fun, fun film or a fun show. Uh, and then, yeah. So, yeah. So, Newsies next week. I am excited. All right. I hope you are, too. Ha ha. 
All right. And uh, so until next time, we'll chat with you all later. Uh, I hope you are all taking care of yourselves. Take your meds. Eat your drink. Eat your drinks. Drink your food. <laughs> eat your food. Drink your water. Uh, make sure you exercise as much as you can or as much as you want. Just get yourself, get your bodies moving and chat with y'all next time. Okie dokie. Bye. (laughs) Bye.